0: Welcome to Sunny in Seattle, with your host Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny's guest will be Dr. Jill Bolte Taylor, a Harvard-trained neuroatomist who had a stroke at the age of 37. And the two of them will be discussing the incredible story of her stroke and recovery, of which is chronicled in her memoir, My Stroke of Insight, which actually spent 17 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy.
1: And good morning. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, attorney-turned-life coach, Sunny Joy McMillan. We're here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. KKNW, bringing you amazing coaches, teachers, authors, and healers who are on a mission to encourage you, inspire you, and give you tools to live a life filled with peace, joy, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch us live, you can always access those show archives. Those are found at 1150kknw.com. And I invite you to connect with me via Facebook. And you can, of course, find me there by my name. Um, We also have a separate page for the radio show, and it is Sunny in Seattle Radio. And if you follow that page, you will get uh, updates on who our upcoming guests are, so you can stay uh, all up to date on the show. Um, And I also want to mention to you guys, I've got an event coming up here on September 20th. Um, it's from 7 to 9.30 p.m. at Windows Art Gallery in the Wallingford neighborhood. It's called Divorce Plus Art Equals Healing. And it's uh, a fun little art therapy workshop I'm doing with an attorney a friend of mine um, that I've worked with on several other events, as well as a dear friend of ours who is also a divorcee. And it's just going to be a really fun time to come together and to uh, do a little bit of healing and create a little bit of hope. Um, so we'll be creating a really fun little art piece um, that is just, two parts. So you'll be bringing something from your pre-divorce life and something from your post-divorce life. Um, and we're going to uh, let your creative juices get flowing and create some things that um, will help you bring up some emotions, process some things, connect with some people. Um, and it will be a lot of fun. So you can find out more by going to my website, goldenoversoul.com. That's golden Dot com And it's right there under the events page, and you can find out all the good details and register, um, and we'll hope to see you there on Thursday, September 20th. So, um, enough housekeeping. I want to go ahead and bring on our awesome guest today, who has been someone that's been on my list uh, to bring on Sunny in Seattle for several years now, actually, and I'm so excited this is finally working out. Um, it is Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor. Um, she is a neuroanatomist whose research specialty was in the post-mortem investigation of the human brain as it relates to schizophrenia and severe mental illnesses. Then, on December tenth, 1996, Dr. Taylor woke up to discover that she was experiencing a rare form of stroke, And from that point forward, uh, that stroke, it took about eight years for Dr. Taylor to successfully rebuild her brain from the inside out. And she went on to write a memoir about her experience, which is what we're going to be talking about here today. Uh, The book is called My Stroke of Insight, A Brain Scientist's Personal Journey. And that book spent 17 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Then she went on to give a TED Talk that went viral, then became a premier guest on Oprah's Soul Series webcast, um, was even interviewed by Oprah and Dr. Oz on The Oprah Winfrey Show back in uh, 2008, And um, she's a national spokesperson at the Harvard Brain Tissue Resource Center, the Brain Bank, and is one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World, named so in uh, 2008. And she is currently affiliated with the Indiana University School of Medicine. Um, Dr. Taylor, it is such an honor to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you, Sonny. It's great to be with you today. Great. Yeah. And uh, for those of you out there who want to go ahead and check out her work, the website is drjilltaylor.com. That's just D-R-J-I-L-L-T-A-Y-L-O-R, drjilltaylor.com. So, you know, we've got some time here today together, Dr. Taylor, and I was hoping, I know you tell this story a lot, but could you tell us a little bit about your life before the stroke and then we can kind of walk through what happened that day of and what followed?
2: Sure. Um, before the stroke, I was teaching and performing research at Harvard Medical School. Uh, my area specialty was uh, the psychiatric disorders because I have a brother who has been diagnosed with the brain disorder schizophrenia, and I always believed that it was a biological difference between the two of us. Mm. And so, the research I was doing was looking at the micro microcircu- circuitry of the brain, which cells are communicating with which other cells in what areas with which chemicals, and what are the differences between different psychiatric disorders from normal. So that was my my work. I was uh, happy at Harvard. I was also on the uh, board of directors for NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. It's a magnificent uh, grassroots organization made up of some 220,000 families with severe mental illness across the country so there was a lot of meaning in my life because i was doing uh, all of all of this and it was all related to my brother's illness. and so i was simply fascinated with the idea of how does our brain create our perception of reality? and what is the difference in my brother's brain and the, the way his brain cells were wired versus the way my brain cells were wired? so how could i connect my dreams to a common and shared reality, and actually make my dreams come true, whereby my brother's brain could not connect to a shared reality, and they instead became delusions. So, mm-hmm. so I was busy. I was uh, had a lot of meaning in my life, and and I was having a great time in Boston.
1: Yes. Okay. And so then that leads up to December tenth, nineteen ninety six, the big day. Uh, what walk us through what happened?
2: Yeah, I was thirty seven years old, so I was in my prime, and Um, You know, everything that I did had something to do with the brain and how the cell circuits are organized in order to create a shared perception of reality. What is normal and what is not normal? And then I woke up on December 10, 1996, and I all of a sudden uh, went through a four-hour process of watching my own brain completely deteriorate, circuit by circuit, going offline. Mm. And, of course, through the eyes of a scientist whose area of specialty this was, it was a fascinating experience. However, I had no idea how ill I would become, and I became so ill that that afternoon I could not walk, talk, read, write, or recall any of my life. I essentially became an infant in a woman's body.
1: Yes, and so at this point, you were living on your own, and, and so you reached out to a colleague once you realized about four hours in that there was a problem. You realized, well, that or, or what happened?
2: Well, it, it, that's true. I, 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 it, I tried uh, for over an hour to try to connect, um, but my, my left brain was experiencing this major hemorrhage. And so the left hemisphere, which connects us to the external world, would go offline. And when the left brain would go offline, I would, uh, walk out into the experience of my right brain, which is the experience of feeling connected to all that is. And it's very blissful euphoria. So I was, I had no sense of urgency and I had no real awareness that I needed to try to get myself help until my left brain would come back online again. So so it was a four-hour process of experiencing the two hemispheres in relationship to one another until I finally did get help.
1: Yes, and I thought it was so – I watched your TED Talk as well, um, and I thought it was so interesting when you talked about – you actually got on your exercise cycle while this was – when you first got up and you were just experiencing some pain, and then you took a bath, and then things just really started – to come apart i uh, sitting against the wall in the bathroom and you're noticing that you are you can't distinguish between the boundaries this is when you're in your right brain of course but you can't distinguish between the boundaries of your arm and the wall it just was fascinating this progression that you describe well
2: it, it, you know through the eyes of a scientist i have to say it it was very very exciting uh, <laughs> yeah. you know i mean people I, people say you know it, did it do you think it served you well that you were a scientist and having this experience and, or not? And I say, you know, I think on the morning of the stroke, it did not necessarily serve me well because I think a typical person would have panicked a whole Uh, lot sooner and tried to get help a whole lot sooner. And, but I was so fascinated with what was going on inside of my brain that, that, you know, there was a certain level of curiosity that was driving me forward. And so I probably waited longer than a typical person would mm-hmm. in order to actually try to get help. And then there was, you know, that that was this waffling in and out of being connected to normal reality in my left hemisphere where I actually could act in the real world versus shifting out into the euphoria and, and blissful uh, experience of feeling connected to all that is in my right brain where I wasn't connected to being able to help myself at all. So um, at the same time, I do think it was my to my advantage that I was a scientist for the process of recovery mm. uh, because I believed in the ability of the brain, that the brain knew better than anyone or anything other than itself what it needed in order to recover. And I thought if I listen to my brain and I actually pay attention to it and give it what it's asking for... And getting out of my own way emotionally and physically and nutritionally, then I stood a better chance of, of a complete recovery.
1: Yes, and I have so many questions about that that point in your recovery about what you learned about emotion, what you learned about the power we have over our minds. And I but I just I wanna return, you know, on the day that this happened, Um, And just to even back up a little bit, uh, you've mentioned briefly the right and the left hemispheres of the brain. Do you mind explaining for our audience just in a little more detail exactly what those hemispheres do for us?
2: Sure. When you think about how our brain processes information, if you have a base of information, you can either become more expansive and more open and look at the broader picture, or you can focus on the details, details, and more details about those details. Yes. And it is the right hemisphere that brings you into the present moment experience, and it actually is the broadened perspective of everything. And when you're looking at the bigger picture of everything, you're not focusing on the boundaries or on the details, but instead you're looking at the big picture and how everything fits and moves together in a pattern similarity. So the right hemisphere is right here, right now, and it's looking at the big picture of everything. And it does not have language. So in order for you to understand what I speak, if I should say dog, dog. When I say dog, your brain looks at dog, it thinks about dog. It has a response inside of your mind to dog, and that's what's going on inside of your left brain. So the left brain... Is going to take information that it has, and it's going to start focusing on the boundaries and the differences between the pieces of information that it's processing so that it's analyzing it, it's criticizing it, it's making a judgment of what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, and it defines the boundaries of where I begin and where I end. I don't have any sense of who I am separate from the energy around me unless I have cells in my left brain that help define this structure that I define as my body, this is me, this is separate from the external world. If those cells go offline in the left brain, then I'm experiencing myself as an energy being with energy all around me, and I'm connected to all that is, and I'm looking at the bigger picture of of just the energy flow and I become a part of that. So the left hemisphere is this magnificent tool that allows us to focus on detail in the external world so that we can define boundaries between things and we can use language in order to describe and communicate with one another. And at the same time, it allows me the language that says I am, I am an individual, I am separate from you. Uh, my name is Jim Bolton-Taylor, I am a neuroscientist, blah, 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 here's the file of what I am. So we have these two very different ways of perceiving the world inside of our head, and then there are some 300 million axonal fibers between the cells of the right and left hemisphere so that they actually know what's going on in the opposite hemisphere. Otherwise, those, those hemispheres are completely separate entities If you cut those axonal fibers, and you have a right hemisphere and a left hemisphere.
1: Yes, and so on the day of your stroke, your left brain was essentially take the left hemisphere of your brain was taken offline, and you were left with the right hemisphere. And so that's right. Yes, so I'm curious, uh, how did you perceive yourself at that moment when you were just left with the right brain?
2: Well, uh, I had no perception of myself as an individual. I did not know what my name was. Uh, I did not know that I was human. I did not know that I was a woman. None of the descriptors of language uh, made any sense to me whatsoever. I perceived myself as a big energy ball, and the energy ball of what I am, it was blending with the energy balls around me. So Uh uh, light is energy. Sound is energy. Uh, touch is energy. I became energy, and um, and, and so I perceive patterns of movement in the energy fields around me. But I could look at uh, at a at a wall that had a door in it, and if there was a person standing in that door, my brain all it perceived was energy. It did mm. not perceive the division to be able to say, oh well, that's a person standing there. So everything simply became energetic.
1: Yes, and it's so interesting. Would you before your stroke because this, this the using the word energy to describe the people, I mean it it seems to mirror a lot of what the spiritual masters talked about for millennia and about how we're all energy and we're all one and I'm curious, would you have ever used that kind of terminology, energy balls of energy before your stroke?
2: I would have because um, I'm a whole I was I was very whole brain. Mm-hmm. Um I started out a right brain child. I was very <laughs> artistic, very creative, very musical, very athletic, and I was much more of interested in, in right brain subjects. Um I did not become a scho- an academic scholar until my second year of college. Um mm. uh, much to my mother's disappointment, <laughs> uh, she wondered if my left brain was ever going to turn on. And it finally did when I found anatomy, and I fa- fell madly in love with the subject of anatomy, and that was, you know, oh, my gosh, I do have a good left hemisphere, and it, it is quite scholastic. So I started out very right brain, and then I became more left brain, and I pursued the academic ladder of, of the left brain, to fall back on. And I have to say that in listening to your introduction of you, you were an attorney turned into a life coach. Yes. So I think we're kind
1: of on the same program here. (laughs) Well, I take that as a compliment. I would love to be on your program. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's so, it is interesting because the experience, like what you describe about this feeling of oneness and, and, you know, in your TED Talk, you get a bit emotional when you're describing just being this whale and this this beautiful sea of iridescence. And I just think this sounds, it reminds me a lot of, I've interviewed a lot of uh, near-death experience survivors and your experience with this sounds very similar to that. Uh, Do you think it's at all comparable you know, I think that uh, circuitry is circuitry. And in order for us to experience
2: anything at all as human beings, we, that we, we have the ability to experience it because we have cells that are performing that function. Hmm. So I can watch a moving planet fly through space. But if those cells go offline, that ability disappears. I can wiggle my index finger, but if those cells go offline, I don't have that capacity anymore. It doesn't mean that I'm dead and that all the other cells are irrelevant. It just means that that specific group of cells has gone offline so that as we experience trauma, as we disappear, if you will, I mean, in near-death experience, what you're going to have is you're going to have somebody who is no longer connected to the circuitry of the left brain, which is capable of making sense in communication with the external world because it's not external anymore. Uh-huh. It's evaporating from its experience in the external world. That information becomes irrelevant, and we're going to shift into the absence of that experience. And in the absence of that experience, we feel we lose that ability to define all those individual boundaries, including where do I begin and where do I end and all those details that are insignificant anymore, and we're going to be running more of that circuitry that has that bigger-picture expansive uh, experience. That's my perception.
1: Oh, okay. I like that. That's interesting. Um, So, yeah, speaking also of energy, Um, You know, once you were, you made connection with a colleague who, uh, do you mind just sharing what happened with that? I just love the way you described that about the, 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 trying to figure out the phone number and ultimately getting to the hospital.
2: Okay. So with my left brain going offline, it could no longer attach to detail in the external world. And I would shift into just this bigger perspective where I'm an energy ball in a state of euphoria. Uh, and the the you know I did I felt like a great whale gliding through a sea of silent euphoria. It was this incredible state of enormousness and blissfulness. And then my left brain would come back online, and it would attach me back to the details of being able to make sense of any information in the external world. And I kept repeating in my mind, plan. I I need to make a plan. And, um, but I, I, you know, all the the information about the external world would disappear. And then I'd come back and it'd be playing. I'm trying to call work. I'm trying to call work. So I had forgotten what my phone number was at work. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to call my colleague because he will help me. And at at this point, everybody's screaming, call 911, call (laughs) 911. And it's like, well, that would have been lovely. Except the portion of my brain that was experiencing the hemorrhage was mathematics and numbers. So I didn't have a 911, and instead I had to go a different route inside of my brain, which meant a human being, find a colleague, and then find a the number related to that person. Uh, so I would look, uh, I'd be looking at a, a business card. It took forever for me to find a business card, though, because I would waft in and out of being able to experience what am I looking at, what am I looking for is this, and then I disappear again and then come back. Uh, but eventually I found uh, the business card, and I, I didn't understand numbers by this point, and so I was actually having to match the, the shape of the squiggles on the business card to the shape of the squiggles on the telephone pad. And, uh, and it took a, a, quite a while for me to, to actually get that number dialed, uh, but eventually I did and and you know it's it's just uh yeah, just think about this story, and it's such a wild story,
1: yeah, it really is and and yeah, the reason that I was that I brought up energy i'm sorry i didn't finish that thought was yeah, once you actually made connection with a colleague, of course, help was called, you were taken to the hospital, and then a whole nother um iteration of the story begins where. the the way you describe it, you know, there are people rushing around, it's an assault on the senses. And, and one of the biggest takeaways I had from listening to that experience or hearing that, um, in your book was around, um, that there are people who give you energy and there are people who take your energy and being really, really conscious that of the energy we bring into the room with someone in the state that you were in, or really anyone. Do you mind speaking to that a little?
2: Absolutely. Um, you know, I get calls every day from people who somebody they love has had a stroke, and they freak out. and And I say to them, you know, if you know somebody who has had a stroke, first of all, do not freak out. I don't care if it is extreme. Do not freak out. Your freaking out serves absolutely no purpose whatsoever other than to leave you in a state of uh, disruption and discontentment. And that person is going to feel energetically that you're out of control, Mm -hmm. which means you're not going to feel like a safe place. And you're not a safe place because when we allow the emotional circuits to run rampant and offline like that, it's just not a healthy, happy thing. And what that person needs right now is for you to love them. They need you to show up fully, get out of your fear, and protect them. And protecting them might simply mean being by their side, holding their hand, loving on them, letting them know you got their back because they are absolutely completely vulnerable now. And so if they're in a completely vulnerable space and they cannot help themselves, then it's your job to help them. And in order to do that, you have to get out of your own fear. It will be at least a month before you know anything. If you're experiencing, if your loved one has experienced either an ischemic stroke, which is with a blood clot, or a hemorrhagic stroke where blood vessels break and there's blood now going around inside of the brain, there's swelling going on. There's trauma and there's swelling. And one of my greatest pet peeves is when people come in and they say, squeeze my hand, squeeze my hand. Yeah. Well, one time is okay because <laughs> you need to know whether or not cognitively I'm present or not. Yeah. But I don't know what a hand is. I don't know what a squeeze is, and all I you know is you're coming in and asking something of me trying to take energy from me instead of bringing your energy to me and supporting me. So I think it's really important in that when we are around anybody who has an illness, whether, whatever the illness is, when we have illness, we're vulnerable. And what we need people to do is we need them to show up, have faith in us, support us, And love us and consciously take responsibility for the energy we bring into their space.
1: Yeah, I love that. And I want to use this time to go ahead and take our break. And when we come back, there was someone in your life who brought some amazing good energy to your space and your healing. And I would love to pick up there um, when we come back from our break. Um, I am talking today with Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor. The book is My Stroke of Insight, A Brain Scientist's Personal Journey. And I highly encourage you guys to not only um, get that book, I loved listening to it on Audible, but also check out her TED Talk. Um, It is a really, really good one. You are listening to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy, and we will be back in just a few. Are you ready to get unstuck from a bad marriage and embrace your best life? If you're anything like me, you may have spent years creating a life that looks pretty good on paper. There's just one problem. Your marriage is unhappy and unfulfilling, but you're too scared to trade your comfortable life for a future full of unknowns. In my new book, Unhitched, I will give you the tools you need to make the right decisions about your marriage, as well as the confidence that your future can be better and brighter than you can even imagine. I share my own very personal story and I will guide you through a clear process that will enable you to answer the question, should I stay or should I go? It's a process that will help you tune out fears and unwanted advice and instead tune into your own intuition and inner wisdom, as well as exit a marriage gracefully and feel secure about your future. Get ready to trade confusion and stagnation for your best life. Unhitched, unlock your courage and clarity and unstick your bad marriage. Available for pre-order today on Amazon.com.
3: I'm Dr. Anthony Lazowitz, and this is Climate Connections. When you're cruising down the highway in an air-conditioned car, it's easy to ignore the sweltering heat outside. But as climate change makes heat waves more common, driving may get a lot bumpier. Uh, ROADS AND BRIDGES AND OTHER TYPES OF PHYSICAL INFRASTRUCTURE ARE DESIGNED TO BE ABLE TO HANDLE A CERTAIN RANGE AND TEMPERATURES. When you look into the future to see what temperature ranges are likely to be, in some cases, they're outside the current design standards. Michael Meyer is with WSP, an engineering consulting firm in Atlanta. He says that occasional hot days do not typically cause problems. The real problem comes with extended heat waves, which can cause pavement to expand and crack. So what you would see is a lot of buckling of road pavements and deterioration of the pavement itself. Anything over 110 degrees consecutively for more than 10 to 15 days, you need to seriously ask yourself the question whether the pavement is designed to handle that. When a road heaves or buckles from heat, it can be dangerous for drivers. So to keep roads smooth and safe over the next several decades, Meyer says engineers need to reconsider the types of pavement they use, especially in areas facing longer bouts of extreme heat. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. Learn more at YaleClimateConnections.org.
1: Sunny in Seattle, radio that positively shines.
0: After countless tries to find healing for a devastating low back pain, Dr. Andy Marone met with his mentor and discovered a balance and clarity he never thought possible. He left his job as a software engineer and began a lifelong journey of learning the power of quality chiropractic care and enzyme nutrition and never looked back. He believes in not just treating pain, but removing roadblocks and paving the way to a happy and healthy life. Join Dr. Andy's Wellness Corner, Mondays from 9 to 10 a.m. on Seattle's Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150.
1: Notice anything different? You should. There's no other station
0: like Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m.
1: And welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy, joined today by Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor. Um, the book is My Stroke of Insight, A Brain Scientist's Personal Journey. Um, find out more at her website, Dr. Jill Taylor. That's just D-R-J-I-L-L-T-A-Y-L-O-R, drjilltaylor.com. Um, so we we left off before the break, Dr. Taylor, um, talking about, you know, your arrival to the hospital after you've had this stroke um, and really, the importance of us bringing um, bringing energy, or being very cognizant of the energy that we do bring to the room when someone is in such a compromised state. Um, and so, there was someone in your life who uh, there that when she arrived, everything changed. <laughs> do you mind telling us a little about that? Yes, my mom, uh, Gigi Taylor. Mom and I
2: have been very close um, uh, my whole life. I mean, she was just my best friend and. Uh, I saw her, even though I was in Boston and she was uh, back home in Indiana, uh, I still saw her at least every three months, and we talked almost every night, and and it was great. I mean, she was just, we were great pals, and she was head, my head cheerleader. And when I experienced the stroke, uh, my boss called her and said, um, uh, Jill's had a severe hemorrhage, um, and it's going to, we, we need you to come to Boston and and." and be her decision maker uh so that we know what we can do in order to treat her and we need you to come and uh be prepared to stay long term. And mom said uh, but she's stable but she they said but she's stable. And so in my mom's mind stable meant I was going to be okay. I was okay. I just had a stroke and now I was going to get, you know, some TLC and I'd be okay. So my mother comes to the hospital uh, on the morning of the third day, and um, she she walks into the room, and as soon as she comes around the corner, her eyes catch my eyes, and she realizes that uh, she describes me as a breathing body in the bed. mm And she was absolutely stunned because she thought stable meant stable. I'd be sitting up. I might be chatting, but I I wasn't just a breathing body in the bed. And so Gigi came in, and she walked around. She acknowledged the physicians who were in the room. Uh, She walked around my bed. She picked up the sheets. She crawled into my bed. She wrapped her arms around me, and she started rocking me as I was her infant again. And it was just this most magnificently beautiful moment, and I didn't know what a mother was. I had lost the definition of mother uh, in the absence of my left hemisphere. I did not know who my mother was much less what a mother was, Uh, but everybody was excited about, oh, Gigi's coming to town, (laughs) Gigi's coming to town, and I'm thinking, oh, this is a Gigi. And (laughs) and I liked it because she was the the first person to really come in and put claim on me, and I knew that whoever this Gigi was, whatever this mother was, this person had my back. Mm -hmm. And as vulnerable as I was, this person was the one who would take, make decisions for me and take care of me. And that was exactly what I needed.
1: Yeah, and I will say another one of my big takeaways from this, um, because I I also have a friend who experienced um, some severe head trauma in the past year and just watching her journey, and we're still in the first year. But one of the big takeaways I had that I was so glad that I had read your book several years ago was because your mom was such an advocate after she brought you home for how much sleep you needed and how long it can actually take to fully recover from something like this. Um, Can you speak to that? Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, um, you know, people say to me, um, you know, Jill, how, what did you do? How, why, why are you okay? You know, um, I had a blood clot the size of literally a fist uh, on the, the afternoon of the stroke uh, in that left hemisphere. Um, three weeks later, the doctors went in and removed a dried up uh, blood clot the size of a, of a golf ball. Um, And it was over language, I should not be able to speak, Uh, mathematics, it took four years before I could have any mathematics. Why did I recover? Mm. And uh, I have to say that the biggest thing that we did different than is encouraged by traditional rehabilitation and medicine is we allowed my brain to sleep. Mm. And my mother figured that if I needed to sleep, I needed to sleep. And if we don't allow the brain to sleep, then it doesn't have time to wash out itself from waste and create uh, the ability of the cells to be able to function normally and be healthy again. And so she would allow me to sleep. And in the beginning, that meant I would sleep for 12 hours, and I'd be awake for 20 minutes, and I'd sleep for another 12 hours. And she didn't care. Hmm. And she didn't care as long as I wasn't sleeping because I was depressed. I was sleeping because my brain was traumatized and it desperately needed to shut out all the information coming in through my sensory systems so that it could sort through its own problems. And by doing that. Eventually, within a few days, I shifted to being asleep for six hours and then being awake for maybe 20 minutes, and then six hours, and then 30 minutes, and then six hours, and eventually I was awake for an hour, and so over the course of time, I did require less sleep. But not for years. For years, I, w- I would I would uh, really need between 10 and 12 hours of sleep uh, a night, and that's for years. I mean, I, I don't remember exactly. You've read the book since I've ri- written it. Yeah. Um, but I, I and I still I, I still am a true advocate for sleep, and um, and sleep isn't laying in bed binging on Netflix. <laughs> Sleep is sleep. You turn it off and you close your eyes and you shut your mind and you go to sleep. Um, And you respect it. I mean, and, you know, sleep in and of itself is this delicious experience. And when you allow yourself to sleep as much as your brain wants to sleep, then you'll probably find that it performs a whole lot better when you're awake.
1: Yes. And I just want to point out, I read it in the intro, but I just want to emphasize it again here from the the time the stroke happened and then post surgery it was 8 to 9 years for you before some memories fully returned that's a long time
2: yes it it is i mean it was um uh mathematics was uh i didn't even understand what a one was everybody would say you know Jill what's 1 plus 1 and i'd think uh 1 plus 1 1 plus 1 and i'd go searching in my mind and i'd say you know well, what's a one? What is a one? And they would say, well, a one, you know, a one, and they'd make the shape of a one, and they'd say a one. A one is, is everything. Everything is a one. And i think, well, if, if a one is everything, then how can you have another one? And it made no sense. I mean, conceptually, I, it just made no sense. And it was four years before I understood what a one was. Yeah. So and my mother was a math teacher. So it's not like I wasn't, tr- you know, they weren't trying to teach it to me. It's just I had absolutely no ability to have the concept of what a number was and what it represented yeah. for four years. And then um, uh, I did not feel as though I was a sol- uh, solid, solid. F- I felt for eight years like I was a fluid because I am a fluid. I'm an energy being having an energy experience in a big old world of energetics around me, mm-hmm. moving fluidly in that. And and it, I didn't have the perception that I was a solid separate from that for 8 years. Wow
1: yeah, and another thing that I think is really interesting that that uh, you lost along the way, which is I think most people would think would be pretty much a blessing. You talked about having silent mind before <laughs> and after the surgery, and basically, it sounds like you're just you all the emotional baggage, you were just wiped clean of all of that.
2: That's exactly what happened. The um, you know when you think about our emotions, um, we we have two cognitive minds and we have. To emotional minds because each of those cognitive minds has its own limbic system mm-hmm. and the limbic system is information is essentially streamed in through your sensory systems, and then it gets processed first when it enters into the brain area the deeper tissue of the limbic system and the limbic system in the right hemisphere processes information about the present moment And the limbic system about the left, in the left hemisphere relates to that left hemisphere cognitive mind, which knows I have a past, knows I have a future. It knows I'm an individual. It knows that I'm separate from everything. And so that's the kind of information, limbic emotional information that that processes. And so all of my negative emotions based on my childhood or anything that had happened in that first 37 years. It was wiped clean. And I I have to say, uh, yeah, that was uh, really quite a blessing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I just, when you talked about having silent mind, and I thought, I cannot even imagine what that must be like, that just have all that chatter and all of that. Think about, I, I learned from Bruce Lipton that for the first seven years of our life or so, we're either in delta or theta brainwave state, just absorbing everything. And sometimes what we absorb from our family of origin is not necessarily terribly constructive. So I'm right. just thinking, wow, to be able to start fresh, that that right. seems to have been a gift in the whole experience.
2: Well, it was. It, it set me free to be somebody new who, and nobody helped me to being the person whom I had been before because I had such extreme trauma uh, in the wiping out of my left hemisphere language center. It wiped out the cells that say, I am, I am Jill Bolte Taylor, I am an individual, I am separate from you, I am a neuroscientist, I am uh, classically trained in anatomy and gross anatomy and histology and neuroanatomy and blah, 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 and all, everything that goes in with academia. Uh, all of that got totally wiped clean. And uh, and then, but I still had a, a right brain. And so I still had the ability to experience joy and blissful euphoria in the present moment because I was in the present moment in my right brain. And academically, my right brain thinks in pictures and it thinks experientially. So I could have, once the trauma went down after the first few months, I could have sculpted for you a a abdomen because I'm a gross anatomist and so you know what that means is I spent 14 years in the gross lab cutting cadavers and teaching medical students about about the cadaver and what's inside of there and I would always teach my students by having them go into the abdomen and just feeling. I'd have them slide their hands between the liver and the stomach and I'd have them feel everything because I wanted them to have that three dimensional understanding of what's inside of the abdomen and what, how are things related to one another and how do they exist in a three dimension instead of a simple two dimension. So I could have sculpted for you the abdomen, but my left brain, because it was offline, I could not have named for you the three parts of the stomach or any of the terminology that goes with that education. So when it came time for me to actually regain my education, all I had to do was uh, put the the terminology of my left brain back on in order to be able to advance that, uh, that knowledge base.
1: Yes. And one of the things that I loved, this was one of my biggest takeaways, and I actually use this. I, I have a couple of quotes from your book that I give to clients around this, um, and it's all around emotion. Um, and i do you mind if I read a quote from the book that was particularly meaningful, and then we can talk about it? Sure. Yeah, so this quote is from, uh, of course, Dr. Taylor's book, My Stroke of Insight. And she says, One of the greatest lessons I learned was how to feel the physical component of emotion. Joy was a feeling in my body. Peace was a feeling in my body. I thought it was interesting that I could feel when a new emotion was triggered. I could feel new emotions flood through me and then release me. And most remarkably, I learned that I had the power to choose whether or not to hook into a feeling and prolong its presence in my body. Or just let it quickly flow right out of me. I made my decisions based on how things felt inside. There were certain emotions like anger, frustration, or fear that felt uncomfortable when they surged through my body. So I told my brain that I didn't like that feeling and didn't want to hook into those neural loops. You make it sound so simple, like we have, and it just—it gave me so much um, uh, hope that we have the capacity to do what you're speaking of here.
2: We do. You—you you have the capacity. And my guess is that you exercise that capacity at times in your life and you're just not aware of it. So I'll give you a a simple example. Mm -hmm. So let's say that um, uh, someone you love love has been um, wounded. They've either been killed or they've been hurt. uh, But whatever it is, whenever you would think about that, you would want to cry. However... You're on your way into a very important meeting, and now is not a good moment for you to cry. So what do you do? You suck it up. You suck it up, and you sidestep it. Mm-hmm. All right? And what happens then when you get out of the meeting, and you're in your car, and you're on your way home? Uh, probably go ahead and let it all out. You either let it all out, or it's been stuffed now, and you've moved on. hmm But you had the ability to use your own mind to choose whether or not you are going to run that emotional circuit or not. Hmm. the same exact same tr- is is true for for anger so if if you are in a situation where you feel yourself getting really angry and we know we know who hits our triggers right right some people hit our triggers for me It was my brother. My brother was (laughs) schizophrenia. He was 18 months older than I. We were like like, uh, 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 vinegar and oil. Yeah. All right. Those separate water and oil, whatever it was. And, um, and this boy, I mean, we, we were just that way with one another. And I could just think of him and I could feel my anger response raising up. And this was pre stroke. And, Now, whenever something goes to hit my trigger, I'm paying attention, first of all, to who do I put the trigger out there for? Very few people have the ability to make me angry. Well, they don't have the ability to make me angry unless I stick my trigger out there for them to pounce on in order to trigger the circuit for me to run. Mm -hmm. So... First of all, if I'm putting that trigger out there for certain people, because, of course, we always put the trigger out there for the people we love, right? (laughs) Don't ask me why that is, but I guess it has to do with because I'm willing to be vulnerable with you and I love you, and so I'm going to give you the power to hurt me. So I'm going to put my little trigger out there, and then then you're going to come in, and you're going to pounce on that trigger. So first of all, I pay attention to the energy you are bringing towards me in order to pounce on the trigger that I have provided you with. And then I have the ability as to whether, yes, I'm going to leave that trigger out there and allow you to pounce on it and make, have me run my circuit. Or no, I'm going to observe you and watch you trying to pounce on my trigger because I brought the trigger down and now it's taking you, you know, 18 uh, attempts to, to make me angry instead of two. Uh Watching the dynamics of our circuitry as we relate to the external world, as we relate to the people in our external world, and kind of doing a little mapping of, of what is my relationship with different people, then I can start observing my pattern behavior because that's what cells are. Cells are nothing but little cells that are in your head. They communicate with certain chemicals. They become the circuit then, and then, and then there's a trigger to it. You run the circuit, and then it flushes through you, and it flushes out of you, and it takes less than 90 seconds for any of that to happen. So if I decide that I'm going to actually observe the pattern response of my brain cells to the different people in my external world, then it can become completely predictable and I can then gain control over what am I going to do? Am I going to actually stick that little trigger out there for you to trigger or not?
1: Yeah, and that's something that I've told my clients so many times. I love that, how you said you could set your watch by it and an emotion unimpeded by thoughts about it will just run through our body in 90 seconds or less. Right. Yeah, that's wild. Um, It's a
2: beautiful thing. And and I encourage people to time themselves. As soon as you know you've been triggered, look at your watch. (laughs) Literally look at your watch. Bring your mind to the present moment because that's really important because – uh, you know, people can stay angry for longer than 90 seconds. So it's like, well, what's that woman talking about? Well, in order for you to stay angry for longer than 90 seconds, you are rethinking the thoughts that are re-triggering the emotional socket that you're then running a physiological response. So, sure, we can stay angry for days. Some people can stay angry for decades. Right. And then the interesting thing about this, excuse me, I'm sorry. The interesting thing is, there's probably a thought in the back of your mind of someone from 20 years ago who did you wrong. And every time you think of that person from 20 years ago, you can still feel this hostility or this anger coming up. It's circuitry. And the beauty of recognizing that it is circuitry means it simply sells that have been programmed inside of your brain to have a physiological response to what you're thinking and what you're feeling. Mm,
1: yeah, and it's just so empowering to, to know that we have the capacity to allow that to just go on through instead of holding on to it for decades.
2: It has the power to change your life. Yes, <laughs> yeah. No, the 90-second the rule, it has the power to change your life.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's why I share it with so many clients when they are afraid to go into emotions and I say, nope, just look to Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, she says it, Ninety seconds, so
2: ninety seconds, yeah, yeah, you know the other the other piece of it that I think is is really important for your particular clientele is that when we face our greatest fears, whether it's the concept of of you know um, some kind of a challenge that is facing us. Uh, We don't know how we're going to get through it or something has broken our heart and we don't know how we're going to get through it. Um, I am a huge advocate for recognizing that the character inside of our right cognitive mind is connected to the power of the universe. And it is the part of ourselves that is compassionate and open and loving and supportive and it's not just a part of ourselves that we that comes out for other people. It has the ability to reach deep down inside of our fearful little left brain, which is that left brain emotion saying, "I cannot. It is not good. I am not happy. I am terrified. I'm going to die. Oh my God! No, actually, death would be better than this <laughs> because this is emotional torture." Right. Okay. The right cognitive mind, our own right cognitive mind, has the ability to consciously choose to actually stroke and cuddle and self-soothe that other part of us. Mm. And by recognizing that we have these various different characters inside of ourselves, the relationships that we can create inside of ourselves can be vast and rich and absolutely beautiful. Mm, I
1: love that. Um, and I think, is that what you call stepping to the right, is to bring that right back? I rein? call
2: that stepping, well, not just stepping to the right. Stepping to the right is recognizing that in this moment, I have the power to choose to step into the left and look at the details and look at the suffering and look at the pain and routinize in my language-based thought patterns, or I have the ability to step into the right, open my chest, lift my arms to the heavens, and literally breathe more deeply and relax more deeply. So there is that stepping to the left or stepping to the right. But what I was mentioning was specifically calling on that open, expansive part of myself Mm -hmm. to reach inside and nurture and soothe the pain and the hurt in my left brain limbic system. Yes.
1: Um, what we have, gosh, we have less than two minutes left, uh, Dr. Taylor. I just want to uh, make sure our listeners know um, that the book is called My Stroke of Insight, A Brain Scientist's Personal Journey. I'm here with Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor. Her website is drjilltaylor.com. Um, in our final few minutes, and I hate to throw a big question on you, but I was I really have been wondering this. That, you know, it feels like you were in a very unique position to have this experience, Dr. Taylor. And I just am curious from where you sit, from a broad, overarching, you know, universal perspective, why you? Why did this happen to you?
2: You know, I think that uh, opportunity comes, uh, you know, along at the right time for the prepared mind. There's some great quote in there. Uh, by Pasteur. I can't give it to you directly. But I was the right girl in the right place at the right time for this to happen. A lot of people have stroke. I just happen to be Harvard trained. I just happen to be uh, specialized in how does our brain create our perception of reality. I just think I was the right girl in the right place at the right time for this really uh, remarkable uh, synchronicity of opportunity to happen for, for insight into this particular experience. You know, I feel very blessed that I had that stroke. Um, I, you know, I went from being a Harvard doctor to, uh, uh, a drooling body in the, in the bed. <laughs> and, um, you know, because I lost my ego in my left brain, I was okay with that. Yeah. Uh, everybody else was kind of freaking out, but I was okay with that. Because I don't value, I don't gain my sense of value on the detail of my ego and who is Jill bolte Taylor and what is, how does it serve her. Instead, it shifted me out of being at all in my ego into being the big picture of humanity. And how could I then take this this experience and what I have gained in knowledge of the brain and what insight can we now have into the brain in order to help us experience more peace and less suffering in the world? So Uh, uh, it gave me a great purpose. It gave me a great story and uh, I'm living a great life.
1: Yes, and I'm so glad that you were here today to share that with us, Dr. Taylor. It's been such an honor to interview you. Thank you for being on Sunny in Seattle today.
2: Thank you, Sunny. I really appreciate you
1: inviting me. Yes, and for everyone out there, you've been listening to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy, signing off.